Good morning, everyone. My name is Mark. I serve as one of the pastors here. And it's a privilege to serve as your pastor. It's also a privilege to be your tour guide uh, or to serve as your tour guide this morning through Scripture as we continue our sermon series through the New Testament book of 1 Peter, to which we've given the subtitle, Faithful Living in a Foreign World. I want to thank Levi for uh, filling in for me last week while I was on vacation. Um, we got past, we got back this past Tuesday evening, and as things go when you go out of town for a little bit, things pile up, like mail. And uh, how many of you also get like boatloads of junk mail? Okay, you know when when I go out to check the mail, here's here's how it goes. There's there's a well-worn path between my mailbox and the side of my house. On the side of my house is a blue recycling bin. And, and so here's, here's, here's how checking the mail happens. I go outside, I open the mailbox. I get the stuff out of the mailbox. I close the mailbox. I walk to the side of my house. I open the recycle bin. I throw it all in the recycle bin. I go back inside. You know, I could probably save myself a lot of time if I simply tore out my mailbox and put the blue recycling bin on the curb and trained the postman to say, hey, just open it up, throw it in there. But the reason why we don't do that is every once in a blue moon, Every once in a while, we'll get something special. We'll get a custom handwritten letter from someone that we love. Someone who's actually taken the time to sit down, write personal words of encouragement, heartfelt care, substance, and send a letter through the mail to us. When we get these things, we tend to keep them. We hold on to them. In fact, I've made a file in our filing cabinet upstairs, and on the the little tab it says e-file. It's not taxes. It's... it's, um, E stands for encouragement, encouragement file. And when I get a handwritten note that means something, I'll, I'll, I'll put it in there because I like to go back every once in a while and read them when I'm um, struggling with discouragement. That really, if don't do that, do that. It, it works. Uh, so anyway, and what you need to know, why, why did I start with this? What you need to know is that the book of 1 Peter is a handwritten letter. It It's a personal, handwritten, first-century letter from the heart of the Apostle Peter to early Christians, primarily Gentile Christians, that were living throughout Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. An early church historian tells us that Peter had a hand in planting, pastoring, and strengthening these churches in Asia Minor. And so he's writing to people that he knows personally. And, And keep in mind, Peter's kind of a big deal. He literally walked with Jesus as one of his original disciples when he was on earth. He was one of the most influential leaders in the early church. Jesus had told him, on this rock, you're Peter, I'm going to give you the name Peter, which means rock, and on this rock I will build my church. That came true. Peter was a foundation stone in the early church. He's loved, he's respected. And so when these first century Christians receive a copy, a handwritten copy of Peter's letter, you better believe that it did not go in the blue recycling bin. I doubt they had it back then, but you know what I mean. Now, what they would have done was this. They would have assembled together. Hey, we got a letter from Peter. Everybody would have gathered. And the letter would have been read aloud for everyone to hear. The original recipients would have understood that it was from someone who loved them, who had a heartfelt concern for them, who had an important message for them to hear in their difficult circumstances, a message that was urgent enough for him to take the time to sit down, 
write a handwritten letter and send it hundreds of miles to them from Rome where Peter was. Now imagine that you're going through a difficult time. And some of you may have walked in this morning carrying a burden on your shoulders. And somebody you really love, somebody you really care about, somebody you respect, that you admire, took the time to sit down and write a handwritten letter to you. A letter that speaks into the circumstances of your life, giving you guidance, providing you encouragement. You'd open it carefully and you'd read every word of it with great anticipation and excitement. Then you'd probably go back and you'd reread it, right? That's exactly how the original recipients in Asia Minor received this letter from the Apostle Peter. And hear this, it's exactly how we as 21st century readers should receive it as well. And in chapter 1, verse 1, Peter tells us something. He, he makes an identity statement for us. And he calls us elect exiles. Say that out loud with me. Elect exiles. Well, what does that mean, to be an elect exile? Well, it means that God has sovereignly chosen you, but the world has rejected you. God has sovereignly chosen you, but the world is going to, if it has not yet already, reject you. God has chosen us to be his people, his representatives on earth, but this earth in its present broken state isn't our true home. We are citizens of a heavenly country, a renewed earth that will one day be our home. And so what does that make us? Sojourners here, foreigners, exiles, aliens, so to speak, in a land of brokenness. And foreigners tend to stand out, don't they? I mean, you can tell who's not from Nashville when you go downtown, right? Um, foreigners tend to stand out, and things that stand out tend to get mowed down in a broken world, which means we should expect opposition and suffering. This is why in verse 6, Peter acknowledges to his original audience, he acknowledges that they're experiencing all kinds of grief in various trials. And sufferings. When Peter wrote this letter, persecution was breaking out throughout the Roman Empire against Christians. They were losing their jobs, they were losing their homes. Many of them were losing their lives. Intense persecution going on. They were in the minority, on the fringes of society, looked down upon with disdain and disrespect. Now, as 21st century is living in America, we're experiencing nothing near what the original recipients of this letter were experiencing. But the winds of culture are shifting, and in recent decades, we too have gone from being in the majority to being in the minority in this country, from being at the center of cultural influence to more being on the fringes of cultural influence, from being respected to being disrespected. And our biblical ethics are increasingly viewed as quite possibly dangerous to society. Which is why we also need to take Peter's letter, receive it with care, read it with care, and listen carefully to his message and the advice he gives to us as well and how to live faithfully in a foreign world. So, with that being said, Levi took us through verse 12 last week. If you didn't listen to it, I encourage you to go back and, and our, on our YouTube channel and, and um, review that. I like to do that on like double speed. You know, we, I sound like a chipmunk. Levi sounds like a chipmunk when that happens. But hey, you get through it in less time. 
Now, now, don't get any ideas about skipping church and just doing that. Hey, we could save a good half hour. No. Um, <laughs> but let's pick up this morning in verse 13 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Would you stand with me as we read together? Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. That's conduct yourself with reverence, reverent fear. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of God. Pray with me. Father, as we stick our noses into your word this morning and, and read the, the words that you inspired Peter to write to this, this, these first century Christians, Lord, would you open our hearts and our minds to hear from you today? We ask that you would do the work that only you can do through your word, through your spirit, among your people, and we invite you to do just that. Amen. You may be seated. You may have noticed this morning that verse 13 begins with a word that begins with T. What is it? Therefore. Yeah, and whenever you see therefore, what do you have to do? Yeah, you have to ask, what is the therefore there for? And to do that, you have to go back to the preceding context. You've got to ask yourself, you know, what is this truth based on? Because that's what the word therefore means. Because of what's come What's already been said, then this. What you're about to read is based on what comes before it. Well, the previous context in verses 3 through 12 that Levi took us through last week, in those verses, Peter, Peter reminds us of what we've been given when we put our faith, put our trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. He reminds us of the beautiful gift of our salvation. That God, in his abundant grace, has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And not just that, but we've also been given an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for us. And not just that, but we are now guarded by the power of God. Our salvation by grace through faith is totally secure and cannot be taken away from us. That's what Peter has just said. In short, he's just reminded us of the gospel, the good news, that in spite of our sin, we're fully loved and accepted in Christ. We're fully forgiven by God's grace through our faith in Jesus. And we have the incredible gift of eternal life. And it's directly after that reminder of the gospel that Peter says, therefore, in verse 13. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but a reminder of the gospel almost always comes before the commands in the New Testament. The indicative always precedes the imperative. In other words, as Christians, we don't obey in order to be accepted. No, it's the other way around. We're accepted 
and therefore we obey. The truth of the gospel comes to us and changes us from the inside out, and that's why we obey. That's when the commands come. This distinguishes Christianity from any other man-made religion. Or I shouldn't say any other. Any man-made. is not Christianity is not man-made. Um, this distinguishes Christianity from any man-made religion because every man-made religion puts it the other way around. You obey to be accepted. Anyway, getting back to the text. After the therefore in verse 13, Peter goes on to give us four main commands on how to live faithfully as foreigners, faithfully in a foreign world as Jesus' followers. And this week we're going to look at the first two commands. Next week we'll look at the following two commands. And so this message is really going to be part one of two on how to live faithfully as a Christ follower in a broken world that's not our home. You ready? Okay, let's dive in. Let's reread verse 13 together. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Literally in the Greek, this text begins, girding up the loins of your minds. Now, our English translation has tried to smooth that out for us, but that's really what the Greek says. Girding up the loins of your mind, do this. You know, in ancient times, people wore long robes as their main garment. And so in order to free their legs up to run, they'd have to gird up their loins. They'd have to take their robes and tuck them into their belts so that their legs would be freed up to move or move quickly. Peter's likely using this language here as an allusion to Exodus chapter 12 and verse 11, where the Israelites were commanded by God to gird up their loins while eating their original Passover meal. You know, when the angel of the Lord passed over and they had to to mark the doorposts with the blood of the lamb? They were told while eating that meal to gird up their loins, to get ready, so they could leave Egypt rapidly. So they could be ready for the impending exodus from Egypt, where they had been living as exiles. Girding up your loins in a Jew- is a Jewish idiom that essentially means get ready, get ready, be prepared. Probably the best equivalent in our culture would be the phrase, roll up your sleeves. So Peter starts out, rolling up the sleeves of your mind. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded... Now, now, what would be the opposite of sober-minded? You can say it. We live in Nashville. We see it on Broadway. What, what, would, what would be the opposite of sober-minded? Yeah, being drunk. Remember that, that life isn't going well for these original recipients. A temptation would have been to numb the pain and zone out. And Peter's saying, don't do that. But instead, do this. Be sober-minded. Being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And right here is where we have command number one on how to live faithfully in a foreign world. How do we live faithfully as exiles? We have to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, what on earth does that mean? Well, let's unpack this a bit. The revelation of Jesus Christ that Peter talks about here is his return, the second advent, Jesus' second coming, when he will come back and be revealed as the true king of the world. He's going to put an end to injustice and evil and make all things new. That's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's something that's happening in the future. So we are to set our hope fully on the grace that will be given to us at the second coming of Jesus. 
Now, grace is undeserved favor. It's something we're given that we don't deserve, something good that we're given that we really haven't earned or deserved. So what undeserved favor will, so we need to ask the question, what undeserved favor are we going to receive when Jesus comes back? What is the grace that we're to put our hope in at the revelation of Jesus Christ? Well, what you need to know here is that when the Bible talks about our salvation as believers, it refers to God's grace being given to us in three distinct ways. First, there's the grace given to us at our justification. Justification is a fancy theological word that means to be made righteous. It's something that happens at a point in time. When we put our faith in Jesus for salvation, we are justified. Our sins are no longer counted against us. We're counted righteous in God's sight. The moment you confess your sins and say, God, I believe in you. I believe Jesus was a sacrifice for my sins. and I place my trust fully in Jesus. Grace given to you at a point in time of justification. So justification is grace past if you are a believer in Christ this morning. But that's not the only grace we're given in salvation. There's ongoing grace given to us as well. We call this, say it with me, that second word, sanctification. Sanctification means to be made holy, to be sanctified, to be set apart. It's progressive. It happens over time. It's the ongoing work of God in our lives to make all things new, to change us from what we were to what we should and will be in Christ, to change us to be an accurate reflection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and his character and his attitude and his posture in the world. Sanctification. Salvation from sin's power. This is ongoing grace that we're continually receiving as believers. But there's a third aspect of our salvation that's yet to come. Say this word with me. Glorification. This is future grace. This is grace yet to come to us. And it's when we are given salvation from the very presence of sin. We're given a new body that's no longer susceptible to sin and death, a resurrected body like Jesus was given after his resurrection. It's future grace. So when Peter says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, what grace is he talking about? He's talking about our glorification. When we receive resurrected bodies that are no longer subject to sin or pain or death. So if I were to summarize Peter's first command for how to live faithfully as an exile, I would say this. Say this out loud with me. Put your hope fully in the coming glorification. Say that one more time. Put your hope fully in your coming glorification. Okay, now that we understand the language, now that we understand what Peter is talking about here, how do we obey this command? How do we obey this command? Well, if you're like me, and I know I am, you tend to put your hope in a variety of things. Thank you for laughing, Olivia. Most, most people didn't get that. Um, you tend to put your hope in a variety of things besides God and the resurrected body that you're going to receive someday when Jesus comes back. You know what this is called? Idolatry. It's looking for life and satisfaction and security and significance in all manner of earthly things, all manner of Small g, God substitutes. And if, you're, and if you don't think you struggle with idolatry as a, as a Christian, then I'd like for you to simply do one little exercise with me here. Fill in the blank of this short phrase. Fill in the blank of this short phrase. If I just had 
then life would be okay. If I just had, what, what do you put in the blank? If I, if I only had perfect health, life would be okay. If, if I just had a little bit more money, life would be okay. If I had more financial security, if, if I had a husband, a wife, a better looking husband, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, personal freedom, better grades, better test scores, a job, a better job, kids of my own, well-behaved kids, successful kids, a house of my own, a bigger house, a promotion at work, a leadership role at church, a better-looking in-shape body, a particular political candidate in power. If if we just had that, if I just had that, then everything's going to be okay. Were you able to put something in that blank? I'm able to. Actually, several things. Because at the depths of our hearts, we struggle to believe the gospel. You know, it's, you, you, we do believe it at the point of our justification, but this is what sanctification is. It's, it's moving from unbelief to belief in every area of life, and that's a process of God chiseling away at the rough corners of our heart, rooting out the idols that we all worship. Whatever you put in that blank, you're putting your hope in that thing, or at least your partial hope. It's what you're looking to for life. It's what you're looking to to provide satisfaction, security, significance. As John Calvin put it, our hearts are little idol factories. We'll always put our hope in something other than God. We simply can't help help it. But Peter is commanding us here, based on the gospel, to put our ultimate hope fully in God and his future grace. Let's put our hope fully in our coming glorification. That's where life will ultimately be found. Nothing on this broken earth even comes close. But it's so easy to put our hope in this world, isn't it? Especially when you're younger, idealistic. Life hasn't kicked the idealism out of you yet. And you're enthralled with what's out there in the world for you to discover and gain and accomplish. But if we're going to live faithfully as exiles on earth, we can't place our hope in anything on this earth, our ultimate hope. I was reminded of this just this past week while while, um, Meredith and I and the rest of our family were walking with some good friends through a a park. We were were visiting them in Philadelphia. And one of the, the friends with us was a gal named Ruthie. She's a single gal who's always wanted to be married but just hasn't found the right guy. Um, she's about to turn 40. She works as a medical professional, is somewhat burnt out because of the vocational strain through the pandemic. She's struggling with chronic back pain and has a close friend that's dying of cancer. And on the walk, she said this, you know, Mark, the older I get, I'm coming to embrace the fact that life is simply a series of difficulties. Something's always going to be wrong, and I can't put my hope here. Her words resonated deeply with me because she's exactly right. This broken world is a poor place to put our hope. You don't have to look far to see that something's deeply, deeply wrong with the world we live in. The Russian invasion of Ukraine killing thousands and displacing millions. The recent racially motivated mass shooting in Buffalo. The slaughter of elementary kids in Texas and yet another mass shooting. 
the recently revealed self-protective actions of church leaders in a well-known denomination who swept cases of sexual abuse under the rug for decades, enabling abusers and perpetuating the suffering of the victims. Another shooting that kills four people this past Wednesday at a hospital in Tulsa. I could just go on and on and on. This world is a broken place. And we, we can argue till we're blue in the face about what laws need to change in order to make things better. But my friends, we can't legislate our way out of this mess. Should we as Christians push for change? Yes. But our hope is not in a political party or a policy change. Our ultimate hope is in Jesus returning, King Jesus, to make all things new. That's why he's commanded his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. My friends, don't set your hope on anything this broken world has to offer. It will disappoint you. We were never meant to take this, to try to make this broken world our home. No matter what Joel Osteen tells you, we should not be striving to live our best life now. No, our best life is later. And Peter tells us that that's where later is where we should be putting, fully putting our hope, the full weight of it. Place your hope fully in your coming glorification, the grace that you will receive when Jesus comes back. We find Peter now moving from this to a second command on how to live faithfully. As an exile, we find this second command beginning in verse 14. So let's go back to our text here. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So Peter's second command is derived from the Old Testament book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 2. Be holy as I am holy, as God is holy. In other words... Here's the second command, summarized. While you wait for your glorification, be an accurate reflection of God's character. Let's say that second command out loud together. While you wait, be an accurate reflection of God's character. Based on the sure hope of your salvation, live differently than the world around you. One of the greatest temptations that, that you and I will face as exiles, as people who stand out in this world, is what? is going to be to blend in so we don't stand out. But Peter commands us here not to blend in, but to be holy, to be set apart as God is set apart and holy. In other words, we shouldn't adopt the attitudes and values and actions of the world around us. As kingdom citizens, as citizens of heaven, we must remain counter-cultural. No matter what Walt Disney tells us, we should not follow our hearts. Peter says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. What is that? That's following your heart. No, be different, stand out, reflect the character of God. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You know, in the Old Testament that Peter quotes here, the people of Israel were called to be holy, to be set apart, to reflect the character of God. Why? because they were to represent him on earth. It isn't though, when God chose Israel, it isn't as though he hated all the other nations and just loved Israel as his little pet nation. No, he had a purpose for Israel. 
And that purpose was to reveal himself to the nations around Israel. To bless the nations with, with the knowledge of himself by using Israel as his showcase people. That's why he placed the promised land where he placed it, right at the, the, the crossroads of the major trade routes from Mesopotamia up here and Egypt down here. They would run right through the promised land. That's why the promised land was the promised land, so he could put them there as a showcase people, so that nations could pass through and look at the Israelites and see an accurate reflection of the character of a loving and faithful God. And as they do, they would go, aha, that's what the true and living God must be, be like. That's what he must look like. Can we worship him too? Israel was to be a holy nation, a showcase people. We'll see Peter unpack this concept further in about two weeks when we're in Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2 where he says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. But Levi's preaching that passage, I think, and I don't want to steal his thunder. So we'll move on. Israel's election was not an end in itself. It was a means to an end of introducing the nations to God. But at Israel, was Israel faithful in their function? Talk to me. Was it, how do you know? How do you know Israel failed? There's a whole section of your Bible where the pages are still stuck together called the prophets, okay? <laughs> That's how we know that Israel failed because he sent prophets to, to blow the whistle and go, everybody out of the pool, you're doing this wrong, you know? That, I mean, that's how you summarize the prophets, okay? But they failed to be an accurate representation of the character of God. In their self-righteous pride, they looked down with disdain on the other nations, but ironically began acting no different in their idolatry, their sexual immorality, and the per perpetuation of injustice. Peter points out that in similar fashion, we too as New Testament believers have been elected by God, sovereignly chosen by him to be his and to be representatives on earth, to live differently, to be holy as he is holy, to reflect his character to the world around us so that when our neighbors and our coworkers and our classmates and our non-believing friends and family look at us, they can say, aha, that's what God must be like. They will look at how we live our lives and say, God must be loving and kind, and gracious, and faithful, and patient, and self-sacrificing, and generous, and full of goodness. What do people see when they look at you and your life? Do they see an accurate reflection of God? Is there an aroma about your life that smells good, that attracts people to your Savior because you're an accurate reflection of the posture and the character of Jesus? Or is there an aroma that repulses them? Let's say we were on a vacation um, this past week, and we were actually in Washington, D.C. for three days and visiting the sites there. And we had a, we rented a little Airbnb, which is an apartment. Um, and um, it had one of the reasons why we chose this Airbnb has a, had an underground garage. Parking in DC is horrendous, and so we just parked our car in the underground garage for a week underneath the apartment and just walked everywhere. We went to the chagrin of our children. But um, after 24 miles in two days, um, <laughs> our feet were hurting, and everybody got new shoes this week. But anyway, um, 
where was I going with it? Oh, yes. Um, as we were leaving, as we were leaving, there's this narrow alleyway where the entrance to the garage is. And I pulled out, and I, we came down. And there was this car blocking the, the exit to the alleyway. It was totally blocking. I tried to get around it. But there's this big cement planter that and just our, our Honda Pilot couldn't fit. And so I was like, oh. So I backed it up. And I got out just to inspect, OK, who would have left their car here? It's blocking our way to, to our to leaving, and looked around, and there's several shops there, and this lady comes out of, of a shop, and I said, hey, is, is this your car? And she said, oh, yeah, are you trying to get out? Or are you leaving? And, I, and I, I, I literally did this. I'm trying to. And I turn around and start walking back to my car, two steps into turning around. I step in it. A large pile of you-know-what. <laughs> and God immediately convicted me. Because an aroma <laughs> wafted up from the sidewalk and what was still all around my shoe and coming up the sides. And I just did this. And the lady who had blocked the driveway said, hey, I have some napkins. And she gave me some napkins. <laughs> and then I felt even worse. You know, in my snarky comment, I'm trying to. I was impatient. I was unkind. I wasn't gracious. I smelled, I was giving off the aroma of what I just stepped in. And God immediately convicted me. My attitude smelled a lot like what was on my foot. Mahatma Gandhi said a quote that's often haunted me. He said this, I, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians because they look nothing. They smell nothing like Jesus. So how do we live faithfully? As foreigners? As elect exiles? Let's review. Say these out loud with me. One, put your hope fully in your coming glorification. Two, while you wait, be an accurate reflection of God's character. You know, in the rest of our passage, verses 17 through 21, we don't have time to fully unpack it, but Peter basically spells out the reasoning behind this second command. I encourage you to go back and read it. The reasoning behind be holy as God is holy. And part of Peter's argument for obeying this command is the fact that as Christians... We've been bought with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or spot. He, he's making several allusions here to the Old Testament Passover, um, encouraging these, these New Testament Gentile Christians to identify themselves as God's people in the Old Testament. He does that over and over again throughout chapter 1 and chapter 2. But let's read verse 18 real quick. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. My friends, a great price has been paid for our salvation. The precious blood of Jesus. So Peter tells us, don't go back to living in the futile ways of the world. And just as Peter reminded his original readers of the precious blood of Jesus that ransomed them, giving them motivation for holiness, we're going to close our service in a similar way. As with a reminder of the shed blood 
of the Lamb in our place, on our behalf, instead of us. As the band comes back up, would you take the little communion cup that should have been on your seat? While celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples, on a Thursday night before Good Friday, some 2,000 years ago, they, they, were, they were eating a meal that, that reenacted the Passover. The Passover was, the, the, the original Passover was, was when God rescued the Israelites from Egypt. And what did they have to do? They had to sacrifice a lamb without blemish or spot and paint the doorway with the blood of the lamb. The angel of the Lord passed over those houses that had the blood. That's why they called it Passover. And each year, faithful Jews, and even today, celebrate a Passover feast with very symbolic elements about God's miraculous salvation of the Israelites out of slavery. There was literal slavery in Egypt. Well, as Jesus was eating that Passover meal with his disciples, as they were celebrating that historic event of God's salvation, he took two elements and he reinterpreted them. He took the bread and as he broke it, he said this, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. It's likely the disciples had no idea what he was talking about, but the next day they would know as they saw his body broken on their behalf on a Roman cross. So let's take together this bread, which is a symbol of the broken body of Jesus for us. He died in our place on our behalf so that we could be reconciled to God. Take and eat this and remember what Jesus has done for you. After the bread... Jesus took another symbol in that Passover meal, the cup, and he reinterpreted it as well and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. When you drink it, remember. Remember my blood shed for you. Jesus was the true and better Passover lamb. He was the lamb without blemish or spot. And he was sacrificed in your place on your behalf instead of you. Take and drink this, remembering the sacrifice he made. You and I have been cleansed, forgiven, brought near to God through the precious blood of the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let's stand together and rejoice in that, shall we?